0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks
1: for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigat. If you heard the headlines of today's show, you know we have a very important conversation uh, ahead of us today about the rise of anti Semitism. And uh, we're going to weave into that a look at the history of the Jewish people in Georgia, which um, is a history filled with um, some very important and powerfully positive. Moments as well as examples of hate crimes that have plagued uh, the community in this state for uh, for literally uh, more than a century and beyond. Um, We're going to talk about that and I'll introduce the panel in just a moment. But Greg Moostein is uh, joining us for today's show. And before we do, Greg, very quickly, for more than the past week, we have been following as you have all of the heightened tensions around the atlanta police training center the protests there um and we now learned last night that governor kemp has declared an emergency and called in the national guard to uh be at that site i think greg Primarily because of concerns about what might happen with, among those protesters, the violent protesters there, um, when the Memphis uh, video of that horrendous beating death. Uh, is released later tonight, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Bill. It's an emergency order that authorizes the governor to call up as many as a thousand national guard troops, and I'm told that it has more to do with that release of the video expected Friday night than anything that uh, surrounding the the, um, the public safety center. But this is a precautionary move. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is aware of it was in coordination with the governor. Um, Of course, the governor's office has, has also informed all sorts of other public safety agencies of this decision. It takes a while to get National Guard troops deployed. So they're doing this as a precautionary measure, just in case.
1: We will watch what happens there and hope that things remain uh, peaceful. And certainly on Monday's show, we'll report out to you uh, whatever takes place over the weekend. Greg, I'm very glad you're joining me for this conversation um, with our panel today. This is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's important to point out that the day takes place every January 27th for a reason. That's the date that, that Russian troops actually liberated Auschwitz. And it was during that period, the liberation of Auschwitz and Birkenau and other concentration camps in Nazi Germany and Poland, that the world became aware of the horrific atrocities of the effort to murder Jews across Europe uh, during the Second World War. My father-in-law, Max Schaefer, was a foot soldier in the army and, he was uh, at one of the camps uh, and was help part of the troops that liberated the camp. Um, Max doesn't um, talk about the name of that camp, never wanted to. He talked only a little bit about the horrors of what he saw, and especially because he himself was a Jew. And so it had particular resonance for him. So it's a day for us to look at what's happening with um, anti Semitism today, more than 70 years later. And we're going to do that with this really wonderful uh, panel. So let me start uh, by introducing um, Allison Padilla Goodman, who is a vice president of the Southern Division of the Anti Defamation League. Allison um, ADL has a recent uh, survey on anti-Semitic attitudes in just a minute. I'm looking forward to uh, giving getting you to give us some of the uh, uh, data behind that survey. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you so much for having me and for your touching intro and constant dedication to the issue. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Um, Representative Esther Panich is here. She represents District 51. I think, Esther, you're Dunwoody and Roswell primarily. Have I got that right?
4: It's close. It's Sandy Springs, Roswell, and some Johns Creek.
1: Johns Creek, you're not? Okay, thank you. And um, one of the reasons we're glad you're here is that you've introduced a measure of uh, this session which would define anti-Semitism in state law, and it would therefore, you hope, make it more uh, uh, possible for uh, anti-Semitic actions to be defined as hate crimes. So and we'll talk about that uh, during the show today. So thank you so much for being here. We're also joined today by Sandy Berman, who is the founding curator of the William Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum, which for those of you out there who have never been there, whether you're Jewish or not, is an extraordinary uh, uh, place to go to learn about Jewish history in Georgia and beyond. Sandy, uh, you know this subject, the history of Jews in Georgia, probably as well, if not better than anyone else I can think of.
0: Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be here. Um, I was actually the founding archivist.
1: uh, Archivist, I apologize.
0: apologize. that's okay. (laughs)
1: Thank you, thank you. Um, Allison, let's start with uh, the recent survey um, uh, and talk about what ADL has found. The the survey, I think, was conducted last fall. Some 4,000 people were surveyed. And um, it it was, uh, I think, a survey which startled ADL because of how widespread anti-Semitic feelings have become. Give us your sense of the highlights of that
3: survey. Sure, thanks so much. Um, The survey was done in partnership with the National Opinion Research Center, and it's a survey we've been doing since the 1960s. Um, Data that we sort of collect year after year, Um, So we're able to compare, and it provides a comprehensive snapshot of current anti-Semitic attitudes in America. Um, And yes, this um, year's survey um, findings were quite disturbing, perhaps not that surprising based on kind of what we're seeing on the ground, but disturbing nonetheless. So the survey found that 20% of Americans um, have extensive anti-Semitic prejudice um, and kind of we would categorize them as being like deeply infected with anti-Semitic hatred. Um, As a basis of comparison for the year in 2019, the survey found that 11% of Americans harbored those attitudes. So this is a huge increase. And it means that 66 million Americans believe in classic anti-Semitic notions and tropes. We found that more than three quarters of Americans subscribe to at least one anti-Semitic conspiracy theory or trope about Jews. And to put these numbers in perspective, it's 3% of the population believes in all 11 of the tropes that sort of are used to qualify anti-Semitism. And while 3% sounds like a small number, that is 10 million Americans. Which is much more than the total number of Jews that actually live in this country. Um, So when I, when I, think about this data and sort of what it means to us, you know, I think those of us that are sort of on the front lines, like at ADL, kind of responding to anti-Semitic incidents, um, we've sort of expected these results for a while now. And frankly, I think if you were to talk to any Jewish leader, you know, whether it be of a synagogue or somebody just involved in their community, I'm not sure how surprising they really were. Um, it's still sobering. Um, you know, we, we know that that um, these questions that we're asking are some of the most dangerous ideas about Jews and that that these ideas have historically led to violence. So the notion of Jewish control of government um, fueled the deadly attacks in Pittsburgh and Poway and the hostage crisis in Kalivel. So while these attitudes are attitudes, they lead to action. Um, and as you know, we do this sort of annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents. Um, and the the data on kind of actions motivated by anti-Semitism are startling as well. You know, oh, go ahead. Finish it. Oh, sure. Um, last year's audit showed that acts of anti-Semitism are more than double what they were just five years ago, and that that's in Georgia as well
1: findings, one of the statements that ADL uses to establish people's attitudes towards Jews, that really strikes me. I mean, there are a lot of them that are troubling, of course, because they're stereotypes and they're negative stereotypes. But one of them that I was really troubled by, um, Esther, is the one, and I don't remember the percentage, and Allison can remind me, but a large percentage of the people surveyed, uh, believe that Jews are different than the rest of us. That's essentially a language. And, and to me, that's just truly startling.
4: Well, I know I experienced it as a child. I went away to um, camp. It was debate camp. I was kind of nerdy in high school. And uh, I was from South Florida. And I went to, it was in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin. And, um, and a girl came up to me and there was a discussion with a friend of mine from South Florida that we were Jewish and she was looking at my head. And my friend kind of jokingly said, oh, we cut our horns this week. And she was seriously looking at like, oh, you did a good job. She really believed that Jews had horns, which was shocking to me. I grew up in a Jewish area. I had never heard that before. We had heard the rumor, the perception of what people in medieval times thought of Jews, but I never really thought it existed in real life or in in current times. So that was really my first experience with people who, not for any reason maliciously, they just didn't know. So I'm finding out a lot and especially having when I moved to Georgia in some of the rural areas, people who had never met Jews, they'd made comments not realizing I'm Jewish, uh, that that they bought something and they Jew down the person they bought it from. They had no idea who they were speaking in front of. And I, after getting over some shock, would take the opportunity to kind of let them know that that I was Jewish. And they had no idea. They didn't realize that I was the same as they were. So a lot of this is education and um, and not coming out with, oh my god, I can't believe you said that to me, but explaining and educating people and giving them the space to be mistaken as opposed to being shamed for being wrong.
1: Right. Clearly, the, answer, the uh, ADL uh, uh, survey is a national survey. Um, But we don't want to neglect to point out some of the anti-Semitism that we see here in Georgia. Um, For instance, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, attended an event and stood at the side of Nick Fuentes, one of the country's most notorious Holocaust deniers, and a man who had, we know, dinner more recently with former President Donald Trump, and yay... Um, so there's that. And and Marjorie Taylor Greene is also the one who said that the California wildfires may have been a conspiracy, a space laser directed at California by the Rothschilds, one of the most uh, illustrious names in the Jewish world. Greg?
2: Yes, and, and you're exactly right. And that's why we're so vigilant for, you know, these conspiracy theories, these anti-Semitic Rhetoric when it comes to George Soros and globalists, when it comes to all these toxic um, uh, uh, frameworks of, of uh, in, in conspiracy theories, and you know when when we in the media have pressed Marjorie Taylor Greene and when, it, when and when um, you know, advocacy groups have pressed Marjorie Taylor Greene, she tends to double down, right? Um, and this is the sort of rhetoric that we hear being repeated out by. Uh, her constituents sometimes, or other people in the communities. And, you know, when they see a leader sort of sanctioning this, that's the concern here. Uh, and this is why we paid so, such close attention this election cycle um, to the George Soros attacks and the other attacks that we've seen, you know, repeated so, so often um, out there, uh, because it, you know, it can double as anti Semitic um, oh. rhetoric.
1: And, and, and let me broaden it for a minute. Uh, Sam Olin, the former Attorney General of Georgia, who, as all of you out there who listen know, is a frequent panelist on this show, um, wrote. He, he's Jewish. He wrote a very moving essay uh, back. It's already been a few years now, but he talked about what it was like to campaign in South Georgia for Attorney General, and talked about the anti-Semitism that he experienced down there. He, he said, for instance, here's an example from the essay he wrote for the um, AJC. Um, he was at a at a rally um, talking at a senior citizen center. This is actually up in Northeast Georgia. And uh, somebody in the crowd asked him where he was from. And he said, Miami. And uh, the person responded, well, I hope you're not Jewish as they are the worst kind. Um, he then talked about another experience in which a, um, a woman very loudly confronts him in a rally and says, I'll never vote for you because you are Jewish. And and Sam in this essay is very poignant in saying that he bit his tongue through this kind of attack, this kind of bigotry, um, because he didn't wanna focus on it in his campaign. He was elected twice and it was only after leaving office that he realized how wrong he was not to have spoken out. So anti-Semitism obviously exists in Georgia. But Sandy, what's interesting about all of this is that Jews were part of the very first days, years of the colony of Georgia in Savannah. Tell us a little
0: about that. Um, Yes, the first Jews arrived in Georgia in 1733, right after James Oglethorpe himself um, came to found the colony. But even from the very beginning, there was a tinge of anti-Semitism. The group was first not allowed entry into the colony. Um, they didn't want to sell or give land to the Jewish um, immigrants who were coming. Uh, there was a, fortunately for the Jewish group, unfortunately for the uh, colonizers, there was an epidemic um, sent, Samuel Nunez, who was on the ship, was a physician. Uh, he came. Um, they. And he said he could help with the epidemic. He did. Um, they were grateful, and um, Oglethorpe allowed the Jews entry into the colony. So even from the very beginning, um, Jewishness or the 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 fact that these colonists were Jewish um, worked against them. And and for the next, um, you know hundred or so years, um, there were incidents off and on of uh, of anti-Semitism that would rear its ugly head at different times in throughout the um, Jewish Georgia experience, um, the most. Uh, uh, the most horrible case was the Leo Frank case during um, 1913 to 1915.
1: Yeah, we want to talk about Leo Frank, of course, in this conversation. But, but before you go back to the colony, I mean, this group of 42 plus Jews in Savannah founded one of the first synagogues in the United States, right? Mikveh Israel.
0: Yes. Yes. And um, they've been an active part of that community ever since. Um, The Bremen, in fact, holds a a lot of the early records from those founding families. And um, we do have a section in our new exhibition, History with Chutzpah, um, about those early settlers who came um, to found the colony of Georgia.
1: Um, I I said in the introduction to the show, I want to be able to talk with you all about some of the best uh uh chapters of Jewish history of Georgia as well as some of the worst and, and I think um Alice and Sandy has already uh started us in a direction toward Leo Frank um but before we get to exactly to Leo Frank let's again take a look at back at history um
2: the,
1: the temple was the first Sandy I'm correct right the first synagogue established in the city of Atlanta. That was in 1860. And it was established by German Jews who felt very strongly that they wanted to integrate as much as possible with a larger city. They did not want to make their Jewishness uh, mark them as different, right?
0: I uh, guess it was founded in 1867, and um, interestingly enough, it was originally an Orthodox congregation, but then it changed um, to the Reform Liturgy with the um with when Rabbi Marx, um, David Marx came in 1895. And um Marx really was an assimilationist. He wanted um Jews to be considered Americans first. Um he did not um want he changed a lot of the liturgy for the temple um to um adhere to what was going on in in George's churches they had a choir these were things that were unheard of in the beginning and um so that the temple would not stand out as being something that was different
1: Jesus. Allison, uh, let's go forward then from the temple, because uh, the Leo Frank family uh knew the temple well. Tell us about and 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 the and the Leo Frank uh, uh chapter of Georgia history it had a big impact on what happened to the ADL and how the ADL expanded. Talk to us a little bit about Leo Frank. Sure. sure. Um, oh. I'm gonna ask Allison to do that. Oh, I'm sorry.
3: Um, no problem. So Leo Frank um was a Jewish man who worked in a pencil factory, who was wrongfully accused of um raping and killing a young woman. Um the evening, you know, when he was convicted, um, townspeople kind of rioted and um hung- lynched him in the town and said, Hang the Jew, hang the Jew. Um, you know, it took many years to to sort of dig into the case and find out. It's also been, I think a case that really galvanized ADL and its growth. And and, I mean, going back to your discussion about the temple and the kind of high moments of Jews, I think, Jews in Georgia really understand very deeply the sort of deep um, intertwining of the fight of anti-Semitism and the fight for civil rights kind of more wholly. Um, you know, ADL was founded in 1913, um, around the same, about the same time as the Leo Frank case. Um And the mission of ADL has been the same since our founding, which is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment for all. And that Leo Frank case really showed, you know, at a time of just immense lynchings in the South of African-Americans seeing the lynching of Leo Frank really brought our kind of joint stories forward. Um, And sort of later events with the temple, which I'm assuming you're going to get into in a minute, um, really galvanized, I think, the Jewish community in Atlanta to understand that um, anti-Semitism does not exist in a vacuum. And while, you know, rates of anti-Semitism are really high especially in moments of sort of social and national and economic insecurity, um, it usually goes hand in hand with other types of hate and sort of acts as a barometer for other types of hate. And so we can't kind of fight one without fighting all.
1: Uh, Greg, one of the things about the Leo Frank lynching that we really need to address here Um, Is he was lynched in Marietta, uh, which is where the young girl who was found murdered in Pencil Factory lived, which is why he was taken there. And our good friend Steve Oney, who's also been on this show a number of times, wrote the biography of the, uh, wrote the history of the Leo Frank case. And he was really the first one to bring to light the fact that many of the most important leaders of Marietta, Cobb County, and the state were actually in the lynching party
2: yeah. and you know this reminds me a few years ago I was with former Governor Roy Barnes, who was calling for Leo Frank to be officially pardoned. And he opened his his ceremony. He opened the, the his speech with a confession. His wife, Mary's grandfather was actually part of that twenty eight man lynching party. and And Governor Barnes said, frankly, he said this could happen again in a heartbeat. And I asked him the reason why he said it's because of a lack of political leadership and religious leadership in the intersection of passion and prejudice. So there are connections to this community, to our community to this day. Um, you know, Atlanta is steeped in history, good and bad, and this is one of the the, um, the undercurrents that still reminds us today of that bad history.
1: You know, Esther, one of the other um, important points about uh, the Leo Frank case, two points really. Number one, uh, I think I'm correct, and Allison, if I'm wrong, you'll correct me, but but Esther, um, I think it was responsible really in many ways for the um, reconstitution of the Klan In the aftermath of the lynching, uh, the Klan, which had been kind of dormant uh, at that point in Georgia, started meeting. They would go up to the top of Stone Mountain uh, and, and hold cross burnings and the like. But the other thing, Esther, is that it scared away any number of Jews who lived in Atlanta and suddenly found themselves in a hostile environment and they didn't know if they or their children were next.
4: Wow. Well, I wasn't here. Uh, <laughs> obviously, none of us were here back then,
3: yeah.
4: but. Um, but it might explain why there aren't that many Jews in government these days, and uh, which kind of surprised me when I moved here from South Florida. It's almost been 20 years. It's been about 19 years at this point. Um, I just didn't really see any, I wasn't really looking either, to be fair. And the only person I knew who was in government was Sam Owens, who is a friend of mine. And um, even though he's a Republican, we're good friends. And I I supported him. And I uh, realized that really, I think he was the first statewide Jewish person elected. And I, um, it really... Is ultimately what got me to run for office was when I realized that Mike Walensky and I think Mitchell Kay at various points were the only Jews in government in Georgia, which coming from Florida was a little surprising to me. So I realized that Mike Walensky was not going to run again. Jennifer Jordan, who was running for attorney general, and Josh McLaurin, who currently held my, the seat I'm in now, two non Jews. Both alerted me that there would be no Jewish representation once Mike Walensky didn't run for reelection. And that was it for me. That was enough. We see enough anti-Semitism. We are underrepresented by population. We should have three or four representatives. And um, it wasn't going to happen on my watch. So if there was somebody more qualified than me, then I would have stepped aside because, frankly, I was living my best life. (laughs) Who wants to jump into this? But no one stepped up, so it was my turn. And um, I'm hoping that Jews become more active in government, but really with the backdrop of Leo Frank, I can understand why people are afraid. Fortunately, professionally, I've developed a thick skin. I've been threatened before in my day job as a lawyer. I'm not really afraid of things or big people. So, I, you know, maybe I should be, but I'm just not. So um, it wasn't that difficult or that big of a stretch for me. But I really hope that it only gets worse when we don't have a voice.
1: So I, I really hope... Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. But I've got to get to a break in a minute, but before I do, real quickly, Allison, you know, on this show, we have talked repeatedly recently about how extraordinary it is to see the diversity that has now blossomed in the state legislature—an Asian American caucus, a Hispanic uh, caucus, whatever—and yet Jewish representation uh, is lacking, as Esther points out, um, and and I I think that's something. To be underrepresented means that your voice isn't going to be heard as as much as other populations.
3: Yeah, I hope Esther's right that she sort of galvanizes a little bit more diversity in our legislature, because, I mean, besides Jewish diversity, there's not much other religious diversity in our legislature. So. I going
1: to a break. I said we were going to talk about some of the uh, positive aspects of history here. And when we come back, Sandy Berman, I'm going to talk to you, ask you to start us off. We know that Leo Frank scared many Jews away and further felt made Jews in Atlanta and in Georgia feel isolated. But years later, when the temple was bombed, it was the first time we saw people across the community come together in a positive way. And I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about what is driving this rise of anti-Semitism in uh, the country today. You're listening to Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, My uh, panel today uh, consists of Allison Padilla-Goodman, the Vice President of the Southern Division of ADL, Sandy Berman, the uh, founding archivist of the William Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum, Representative Esther Panitch, and of course, Greg Bluestein uh, of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And by the way, everybody on this panel today is Jewish. Uh, and so this is a subject that matters greatly uh, to all of us, as I hope it does. Many of you out there who are listening who aren't Jewish Sandy um we talked about the temple uh and its founding in the ninth, in the 19th century and being a big an important uh time in which the rest of the community the, the city at least saw Jews around them um but in 1958 uh the temple was bombed and and you'll tell us a little bit more about what was behind the bombing, but I assume it's fair to say it may not just have been anti-Semitism, the rabbi at the time, who became an extraordinarily important figure in Atlanta life, Jacob Rothschild, also was a believer in integration, he fought racism. And so it is certainly conceivable that it was the combination of his being a Jew and being an integration, supportive integration, that led to the bombing of the temple. Yes?
0: Absolutely. And if I could go back just for a moment to the Frank case, I just wanted to say that you were so right that before Frank was uh, lynched in 1915, there were many more Jews who were involved in the political arena. Um, Afterwards, it just wasn't the same. They, They lived in fear. They went underground. And when we were doing research for an exhibition we did on the Frank case, we discovered a letter in um, the New York Times um, offices under um, Adolph Ox, the then publisher of the Times, got very involved in the Frank case. And his cousin wrote to him and said to stop publishing articles about Leo Frank because the Jews of Georgia were now living in fear. And they had met 100 of the, the most prominent Jews in Atlanta had actually met at the club. And we felt confident it was the Standard Club. And as a group decided that Jews would no longer speak out, they wouldn't speak out about the Frank case, they would just stop. And so that is the impetus for this this feeling that they could no longer get involved, that everything they would have to do would be quiet. And and so when Jacob Rothschild came to the city in in 46, um, he assumed the pulpit at the temple. he he sort of brought that uh, congregation kicking and screaming into the civil rights era. He was very vocal about it. And um George Bright, who was one of the um men indicted for the temple bombing, hated Rothschild. And 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 so that was um. One of the reasons that the that the temple was targeted because Rothschild was just such a spokesperson for integration. He was friendly with the kings. Um, he he really um, wanted the Jewish community to speak out. And after, oh, go
1: oh, ahead. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to, to, to say that that um, Rothschild did make all these connections with non-Jewish leaders. Um, And we should point out two things. One, I I think, um, uh, Allison, if you want to jump in here. um, In the aftermath of the bombing, uh, leaders of Atlanta came together and condemned it. And by the way, no one was killed. A portion of the temple was destroyed, but fortunately there were no fatalities. Uh, The man who was uh, uh, put on trial for her was acquitted. But the community for the first time rallied around Jews, and it's sort of a bookend with the Leo Frank case, which frightened the community, and suddenly in the late 50s, Jews felt mm, they still had reasons to be concerned, but they they were being supported to some extent in a new way, and a lot of that had to do with Rabbi Rothschild.
3: Yeah, can I bring that up to today? Do you mind? Um, I mean, it just makes me think of uh, perhaps one of my proudest moments in Atlanta in my almost six years here was shortly after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Um, You know, I got a call from Peter Berg, who's dear friend, head rabbi at the temple. um, And we were putting together a sort of interfaith response to that incident. and. I mean it was just an incredibly beautiful event i mean there was people of all faiths and backgrounds the temple was packed on a i think it was a tuesday afternoon in the middle of the day i mean standing room only um and so i think that spirit uh, of rabbi Rothschild really continues today and i think we've seen many many moments of people coming out in support of the jewish community and i think it's why the jewish community um really understands the sort of uh, moral obligation to come out in other moments as well. Um actually I'll just give one other example. The um after the um the Christchurch shooting in in New Zealand of the mosques, um I went to a couple of the um of the the services at, at different um, Islamic centers and mosques. And I went to this one in Alpharetta and I kid you not, at least at least 50% of the room was Jewish. Um, And it was just kind of this moment of like, that is who we are. And we understand that this sort of kind of shared oppression and and challenges really unites us.
1: I should also mention that uh, Rabbi Rothschild, when when Martin Luther King Jr. won the Nobel Peace Prize and came back to Atlanta, there were many people here who had no interest in marking that occasion, celebrating it at all. It was Jacob Rothschild, And his wife, Janice, who stepped up and helped organize with Robert Woodruff's help at Coca-Cola, a dinner for the Kings. And Janice Rothschild, his widow, who's still with us and has just got a new book out, talked to me on the show once about how remarkable it was to dress and go to this dinner with Coretta Scott King. So that was a moment of coming together. I said there were beautiful moments in the Jewish history of Georgia. That's another one.
2: Yeah. And can I talk about a beautiful moment that was more recently? Of course. Um, and, and, you know, and by the way, the great Rebecca Burns wrote a, a terrific book about that, that um, that Nobel Peace Prize weekend um, with the threats of riots and the community coming together ultimately. Um, but I want to bring in Representative Panich because just a few weeks ago, there was this really important event that she helped organize at, at my synagogue congregation, B'nai Toro, that I attended with more than a dozen lawmakers from both parties, um, all going to a a fairly Hebrew-heavy service, and then afterwards uh, sitting down for Shabbat dinner together. Representative Panage, that was one of the most unique events I've ever... You know, there's the Wild Hog Supper before every legislative session. That, to me, was a new tradition, maybe the Wild Brisket Supper. (laughs) But talk about your hopes for that event and, and, and what it was like to pull it together and bring lawmakers of different faiths and different political backgrounds uh, all under uh, one roof.
4: Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. It was it was a beautiful night, and it really exceeded my expectations. Uh, when I was running for office, well, let me just back up to what Allison said. So after Tree of Life, um, I felt, I mean, I went to my synagogue, which is also the Torah, and, um, I, you know, we all felt the need to be together and to reach out and i felt the need among people who were not jewish to introduce them to my home and my traditions so i invited colleagues of mine um i was a legal analyst for channel two so i invited um reporters that i knew and other people who were working immediate to my home for a shabbat dinner so they can understand what it felt like to be jewish and to for some of the nicer traditions, but to just to know what Jews do, you know, and what we do on a Friday night and it's a family dinner. And so I invited them. That was my way of bringing my community in and um, sharing it, sharing Judaism with the people who were around me. And so it's always been in my house, we've always done Shabbat dinner. So, and that's always the way that I bring community in and my family. So at least one night a week, Shabbat, we're gonna have a peaceful, quiet, nice dinner. So whether it's pizza or a full meal, it's gonna be something. So while on the campaign trail, I said to my husband, if I'm elected, I really wanna get to know some of these other lawmakers I am going to offer to host Shabbat dinners once a month, a couple times a month for lawmakers on both sides. So once I was elected, I was talking to Dove Wilker from the uh, American Jewish Committee and gave him the idea and was hoping he could help me kind of talk through it. Well, he said, what about hosting it a large one at the synagogue when we all belong to the Torah? I said, what, that sounds good. And he then took over and put it together. He was able to find a sponsor and we brought in Todd Jones from the community. He's a Republican and he, and Rabbi Heller was game and thought it was a great idea. So that's how it came together. I mean, it was just kind of, everybody was available and willing to put it together Uh, Representative Jones reached out to his colleagues. I, rep- I reached out to mine and that's how it happened. It was kind of pretty organic. 30 to 40 lawmakers showed up, not just representatives, but judges, council people, mayors. Um, it was really, there was a need. And at the dinner, Dove Wilker asked how many, for how many, was this their first Jewish event? And much of the room raised their hands. I mean, much of the non Jews, most of the non Jews, because there were some community members there too, raised their hands. This was their first opportunity. Rabbi Heller gave all the politicians a nonpartisan blessing because we were about to start the session. It was really a nice way to start. I'm hoping it's the inaugural or first annual event. (laughs) And it was a little strange because to bookend the weekend, Friday night Shabbat dinner and a Sunday wild hog. So, you know, only I
1: gotta, I gotta jump in because I'm late for our final break of the show, but congratulations on pulling that together, uh, uh, Esther Panitch. Let's uh, take our break and come back and talk more with this panel. At a time when
4: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause.
1: talk uh with panel a little bit about um w- where we stand with anti-semitism in this final segment but really quickly sandy before i do you know if people really um it, it esther's uh uh satyrs really are helping introduce people who are not jewish a little bit to the customs but there is an exhibition right now at the bremen heritage museum about jews of the south that if price, it strikes me says more about how how much like the rest of the South Jews are and yet with their own distinct culture? Right, what's it tell, tell us just a bit about it?
0: It's um as Erin mentioned, it's called History with Hutzpah. Uh Jane Levy, who was the founding executive director at the museum and and I had curated the, the exhibition, and it it takes you to wonderful stories about the Jewish community. And, and some of them, like the Leo Frank case, you know, are the, are the low points, but also some of the wonderful high points. And, um, when you mentioned Janice Rothschild, I just wanted to um, add that she coined the phrase after the temple bombing, that it was the bomb that healed, because there was such an amazing outpouring of support for the Jewish community after that. And, and let's not forget that in 1968, we, we elected a Jewish mayor for the city of Atlanta, Sam Mazel. So I think that we also have high points, and both of their stories are mentioned in the chutzpah exhibition. So. Hopefully. Well, uh, it's going to be there for the next two years and come and come and learn about the Jewish community of Atlanta.
1: Congratulations on, on that exhibition. It really is wonderful. All right, Allison, what the heck? What is going on with this suddenly mainstreaming in many parts of our entertainment community, the sports community, politics with Donald Trump? What is happening. Well, I don't know if explosion is a fair characterization, but certainly a, a disturbing increase.
3: Absolutely. Um, and these people have a very strong <laughs> mic that reverberates very far and wide. And so that platform is not just one individual doing something foolish or misspeaking, but it's, um, it's setting off. And look, we can look at the impact in kind of anti-Semitic attitudes in the nation, as we talked about with the survey. We can look at impact on the ground. We can look at sort of the um the sort of unleashing of white supremacists and extremists in our country. I look just in Georgia, um you know, we see white supremacists kind of doing uh, these sort of propaganda incidents, you know, putting up flyers, dropping banners off of interstates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, In 2021, we had 39 incidents of white supremacist propaganda in the state of Georgia. And in 2022, we had 155. So, you know, we are not talking about small impact. We are talking about huge impact um, of these moments when, Um, yay, or Nick Fuentes gets a platform, or President Trump sort of does a wink, wink, nod, nod to anti-Semites everywhere, Um, we see real impact on the ground here in our community. I mean, my question
2: for Allison is, and this is broad, but what can listeners do to stem the rise of these hate crimes this anti-Semitism?
3: Yeah, Um, I love that question. And It actually goes back to something Esther was saying earlier, you know, when I look at sort of the the incidents and the panoply of of what we've been witnessing in our community over the past several years. Yes, we have lots of like really gross anti-Semitic incidents motivated by white supremacists, motivated by extremists, motivated by anti-Israel activism. Uh, we have a lot of incidents happening that are pretty blatant and disgusting, like swastikas and vandalism, and kids dressing up and doing in Nazi garb and doing Hitler salutes. But frankly, we have a lot more of what I would kind of call like accidental anti-Semitism. So people doing anti-Semitic things and maybe not realizing it. So maybe not realizing that looking for your horns was like deeply disturbing and stayed with you for several decades later, right? Um, And so I think there's these needs of education are not just kind of nice moments of education and singing Kumbaya, but they're real moments of getting to understand each other and sort of build beyond so that these little moments of sort of accidental anti-Semitism. And again, I'm not talking about the the yays and the Nick Fuentes. I'm talking about like your neighbors and your kids in the school who don't know Jews and don't know the history and aren't learning about the Holocaust and are having their um, their history and their civics lessons somewhat scaled back these days. Like these are the the moments that I think we really have to like lean heavily into education um, and really sort of um, build more understanding.
1: It feels to me like um, a, a big issue, the Nick Fuentes, the white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, we have to watch that and be really concerned about it and keep calling attention to why it's dangerous. That's but funny. you said an important thing, Alison and Esther, you did, too. We also have this responsibility in our personal lives. It goes back to Sam Olin saying, I realized that silence was acquiescence. And I have had experiences. Esther, you talked about the expression, Jewed down. A neighbor years ago, uh, when I lived in a different part of town, came out of her house to say to me, look at the wonderful new roof that we've just put on our house. And I got it cheap because I Jewed the guy down. And I said to her, I don't think you understand. I'm Jewish. That's incredibly offensive. In the same way, it seems to me, Sandy, that if I'm in a group of people who tell a black joke or a Hispanic joke, it is my obligation to say, please, I don't want to hear that. Those are the personal ways that we can change, maybe in a small way, day to day, a culture around us. Somebody respond to that. (laughs)
0: Oh,
3: I will. I think, um, I mean, we teach people, I will say at all levels. I mean, elementary school students up until government officials that everybody has the ability to make impact, right? Everybody has agency. If you're 12 and somebody says a joke next to you and you don't really know how to respond and you don't know how to get up on your soapbox, you can just say, that's not cool, right? That makes me uncomfortable. And then your friend's hatred or sort of bias gets checked and doesn't kind of escalate and get internalized most of these sort of more heinous extremists or heinous acts of hate crimes are things that have been brewing for a while for people that maybe had some bias that was allowed to grow and fester and sort of take over and explode and so i think if we can really kind of stop it at the elemental levels uh we've got a chance of success
0: and i'd like to just go ahead sandy just with education um and that's one of the roles of the museum is to bring um, school children in, uh, students in, the general public in to learn our history and to learn uh, some of these stories and to understand that Jews aren't any different. Well, the, besides the the obvious differences of religion, um, basically we're all the we're all into we're all human beings, and and that's why. Um, exhibitions like the Bremen and educational um, uh, education to the to the general public is so important.
1: And so we're really short on time, but very quickly, you've got your hate crimes bill, which would define anti-Semitism. Yesterday on the show, Mary Margaret Oliver told us she was a co-sponsor of that bill and was very proud to be working with you on it. What do you want that bill to accomplish? You've got about a minute to tell us.
4: I want it to pass this year. <laughs> it
1: didn't pass last year. It didn't year. last year. Yeah. It,
4: it got stuck in the Senate. And let me just say, I I just happened to be in the right place at the right time this year to be a co-sponsor. But John Carson uh, put this bill together and he got it, along with Mary Margaret Oliver and Stacey Evans and Deborah Baysmore and lots of other people on both sides of the aisle. Chuck Efstration, who is the majority leader. Uh, lots of people are working to get this through. And um, it it passed the House by a wide margin last year, but got stuck in the Senate. Lieutenant Governor said he just didn't have time to bring it up. Well, he's not there this year, and we're hoping it gets called in both houses and passes by wide margins. And um, it defines what anti-Semitism is. There is no definition right now. And what I think people don't realize is that Judaism, religion, religion, is not covered by the Civil Rights Act, Title VI under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So there is no definition.
1: Man, I apologize. We are so short on time. The point is, get this definition in law and then establish that it should be included in hate crimes uh, 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 against people in Georgia. Um, I'm. We are completely out of time. And I'm just so happy that you were all here for this conversation today on... International Holocaust um, Remembrance uh, Day. I, um, I appreciate your frank conversation with me, Representative Esther Panich, Sandy Berman of the Bremen Museum, Allison Padilla-Goodman of ADL, and Greg Blustein, thanks for switching days and coming on on Friday. It was a pleasure to have you here for the show as well. We're out of time for today um as i said at the start of the show we'll be watching this weekend to see what happens with national guard coming to atlanta um what happens in in terms of the protesters how they might respond to the memphis video being released tonight let's hope it's peaceful if something happens we'll be here to talk about it on monday again so that's it for us today um see you again on monday in the meantime i'm bill niger please take care stay healthy hey fight prejudice. Take care, everybody.